a bit of a different spare part. As you will be aware, our last podcast had a special guest. So I thought it'd be quite nice to have a bit of a chat with him about some of the stuff he's done in the past. And Doug's here as well. And we thought it would be quite nice to have a bit of a chat with Paul. So, Paul, welcome back. Thank you, Stuart. Nice to see you again. I should say it's been about a month, six weeks maybe, since we recorded the actual podcast. So this shows you how long it takes me to edit the podcast and get it out. Paul, do you want to tell us a little bit about your past history and then what made you become a writer? Well, would you believe it was Enid Blyton that got me interested in the very early days? I was eight years old. I'd read the Faraway Tree books, which wasn't entirely different to Doctor Who, as in a tree led to a different land each chapter. And I decided I'd write one. And the trouble is, I didn't know where the keys were on the typing board. So it took me about half an hour to write. Let's climb the faraway tree and see what land is on top, said Joe. And (laughs) that's as far as it got. But I got into science fiction, mostly because I was a huge fan of space travel and astronomy. And I got reading Arthur C. Clarke because I couldn't wait for the next probe to arrive on Mars. I needed to know what they thought was up there. And the more I read of it, the more I thought I'd like to write this. And so, you know, I just tended to write short stories about space travel, really, and space battles and a few things like that. And then as I'd got fairly confident in my writing and there was a local magazine, this would have been about 1990-ish, And I had a girlfriend at the time who, not to go into too much detail, her parents wish she'd never been born because she'd messed up their lives, was how they saw it. And the thing is, she kind of saw it that way too. And I said, so if you had the chance to go back in time and prevent them from conceiving you, you would do that? And she said, yes. So I wrote a story based on that idea It didn't actually get published, but it did get read on the radio, independent radio. I think it was on quite a few. And the the reader, he was good, but choosing a male voice for a a young woman talking about the mistakes made in her life and being in first person was a bit of an odd artistic choice or casting choice. But anyway, it, it had got me started. And then I wrote a sort of what I felt was a sort of literary ish story. I'd been in a bookshop and I saw the collected works of Coleridge. And then I saw probably Len Dayton's Bomber. And I thought the Coleridge bomb or the Coleridge bombers, I had no idea what it meant, but I just sat down and wrote it. Eventually I got it published in a, an anthology, um, 1992 that would have been, alongside Terry Pratchett, uh, Neil Gaiman, and a few others who are quite well known now. Oh, and uh, Ben Jeeps, a friend of mine, He's had quite a lot more published than me, though. So that was sort of how it started. One of the reasons, obviously, we've spoken to you is partially because you wrote for Doctor Who within those wilderness years when we had no Doctor Who on TV. How did you get started on that? Yes, I'd always kind of wanted to write a Doctor Who story. I actually wrote a couple of scripts for the BBC, which I sent in, and they got sort of summarily rejected. There was one, it was copied from 2010, where two enemy space travellers end up having to overcome their differences and they use their two spacecraft as a two-stage rocket. And that was the big solution in my Doctor Who script. As I say, that, that never came to anything. Then, of course, when the wilderness years started, I was thinking, hey, I've, I've written a bit. I could probably make something up about Doctor Who. 
And so the first thing I did when I saw that Doctor Who magazine were doing brief encounters and I had this idea of the girl who had been possessed by the Black Dalek in remembrance of the Daleks. And I was a bit kind of hung up on the idea of everybody is in danger all the time. How do you cope with that? I mean, most people, like, you have a near-miss car accident and you think, phew, that was a narrow escape. But, you know, you don't have that every day. You don't sort of think, right, I had a near escape yesterday. I'll probably have one today and I'll have another one tomorrow. How does that affect people? So I imagined the schoolgirl who'd been, you know, dancing about Coal Hill School and zapping people and then connected to the Black Dalek when it exploded at the end. Should I have given a spoiler warning there? People have had time to watch it by now. <laughs> yes. There's been a few oceans under the bridge since then. So. Yeah, I tried to imagine her her sort of later years. And it's going to sound like all the ladies I've dated have had serious hang-ups. I did have a girlfriend <laughs> who ended up in, I think the correct term is still a mental hospital. And I went to visit her. We'd split up long before, but we were still on fairly friendly terms. And little details struck me, like they were doing their own cooking and she even did a boiled fish in a bag. And uh, she had a pair of scissors. And I remember thinking, hmm, the patients are allowed scissors. So basically the story I wrote about the schoolgirl, I renamed her, well, didn't rename her because she hadn't got a name. I just named her Judith Winters and uh, basically told the story of my visit to her in this hospital, except it was Ace instead of me. And it seemed to go down quite well. It was so it made me a bit of money from... Doctor Who magazine. And what really pleased me is that Judith Winters seems to be her official name now. In an episode of Flux, when they're in the the early unit quarters, there's a prop on a table at one point. And you can't see it on the television, even if you freeze it and try and zoom in. But I did find out that this prop, it's a document and it does describe the story of Judith Winters. And it makes a reference to what happened later in the story that I wrote. That was called In the Community. It must have been great to see your work being referenced after all this time. Yeah, it was sort of, I mean, up till then I'd been a sort of canon. What's canon? There's no such thing as canon. But then (laughs) when I realised that it was mentioned in a prop, it's, my story's canonical. Why not? Which which isn't the case for an awful lot of the stuff that came... It was written in those time periods. Most of it isn't. Yeah, a lot of a lot of outcomes have been overturned. I mean, for example, Joe Grant became Joe Jones and married Cliff, but then in a book by Paul Leonard, very nice chap I, I met, it's established that Cliff walked out on Joe at some point and was never seen again. But it's kind of been made canonical that they, the two of them stayed married, became very happy had grandchildren and all that sort of thing. And I kind of prefer it that way. A happy ending. Yeah. Call me an old romantic. So how did they they approach you to to write a book? Because obviously the short stories are one thing, but writing a book is a whole other thing. Yeah. Again, it was really a case of you, you send in a proposal and they either like it or they don't. And if they like it, they they get back to you. I. I must admit, I wasn't really caught up in the Virgin books. I read a few, and 
you know, they were absolutely fine, but just not the kind of thing I wanted to do. I didn't like the, well, to put it nicely, the excessive continuity references that they'd put in. Like some of them I'd think, there isn't a single paragraph here that hasn't had a callback to the TV series. But then I kind of felt the continuity between books was getting a bit complicated. Again, not in a bad way, but in a way that I felt I couldn't really join without really knowing it. Whether that was true or not, I don't know. But then just one day I thought, stuff it, I'm going to write the Doctor Who book that I want to write. And if they like it, then fantastic. And if they don't, it's a bit of practice. So I think I'd been watching, it was either QED or Horizon or something like that, TV series. And they were talking about chaos theory. And they were showing how you could, like, two planets in orbit around each other and a moon that does a figure eight and goes around one planet for so long and then switches to the other planet for so long. And you cannot predict which when it's going to swap planets. And I thought, well, that would work for a planet going around a, a twin sun. So I'd got this idea of the planet Karesh. Took me ages to name it. Quite a few of the names. I thought, there's a name. And then it would turn out somebody had used that same name for a monster or a continent or or a, a, a ray gun or something. But yeah, eventually went for Karesh. It didn't occur to me at the time. It sounded a bit like David Koresh. So, so there's times when I, were, I went to ego surfing and I did a search for Sons of Karesh. Do you mean David Koresh? I thought, no, I really don't. I'd wanted the story to be entirely off Earth or only very briefly touch Earth because I like, I really like Doctor Who to be exploring planets or if it's Earth to be historical or future. If I had my way, contemporary stories would be a minority because the whole point in having a time-space machine is you get out there. And I did have I had an opening of long lost, but I remember there, there was an opening line that was something like the telepath had no eyes. And as the character Solenti, who made it to the final script, but there's a scene where she's consulting this telepath and she brings him a load of food and he's eating chicken and he's stuffing himself. And then he telepathically says something about, yes, here's the information you want. And Solenti said, look, don't, don't think with your mouth full. But that never got in. And there was some vague Jack and the Beanstalk stroke, Orpheus and the Underworld imagery that came up as well, which didn't make the cut. Simply because Justin Richards really wanted it to be set mostly on Earth, being John Pertwee. But uh, funny thing is, everybody thinks John Pertwee is the, the Earthbound Doctor. But if you stop and think about the number of planets he's been to... It's actually quite a lot, certainly more than Patrick Troughton managed. So, I imagine it's about 50-50, is it? Well, I mean, of course, it, initially it was just on contemporary Earth, but, you know, he went to Peladon, he went to Axaria, Sealers 3 at least twice. Peladon twice as well, eh? Peladon twice, yes. Didn't get to Scaro, but did see it on a monitor when he was on Spiridon. I went to the Ogron planet, the Draconia, I think it was. Yeah. So... Yeah, he did get about quite a bit, but I thought, well, I've got a few ideas that would work better on Earth. And so about two thirds of the book is set on Earth, but a lot of it was from the alien character's point of view. So a lot of the time, what I was aiming for was she was looking at what's completely ordinary to us, 
arriving in Chichester and looking at people on bicycles, people smoking, people talking on mobile phones and so on, that being totally weird to her, to her. But what I was aiming to do at the same time was give clues as to what life was like on Kerish. And so by the time the action had moved to Kerish, it was kind of, you felt a bit more at home was what I really hoped. And or, or rather, I was hoping it would flesh out this this world. And Joe was very kind to say in our last meeting about the world building being good. So I thought, well, it worked for somebody anyway. So when you start something like that, then do you get told that you're doing the third doctor or was that part of your pitch that you were doing the third doctor? Yeah, it was part of the pitch. And I think, I don't know exactly what went on behind the scenes, but I think they thought, yeah, we could do with the third doctor story now. Right, it must have been around about the time you wrote that, or that uh, John Pertwee passed away. I think he had a short time before, when I was in the process of writing it. That reminds me, on Karesh, people's hair doesn't grow any thicker than mine, and male and female. And when the Qureshi character, Troy Gaines, her name, when she first arrived on Earth, she was totally freaked out by people having long hair. It just looked really weird to her. So when... Joe, the Doctor, and Troy Game go to Karish. They're about to leave the TARDIS, and Troy Game is sort of, you're not going out looking like that, knowing that their long hair would have freaked the, the locals out. So she insisted they have buzz cuts, and Joe just happened to have suitable hairdressing equipment in her room on the TARDIS. And the Doctor very reluctantly acquiesced to that, and I thought it would, could be quite nice to have that as an image on the cover. And I, mean, I, I wasn't thinking in terms of offending anybody's memory, anyone's memory of John Pertwee or anything like that. I just thought it would be a nice arresting image of familiar characters. So I, I suggested this for the cover, and that's what they went for. And uh, there were serious complaints about it from fans, you know, really angry of how dare you do this. Were they people that had read the book, you know? Or was it just people that saw the picture? I think it was just they'd seen the picture and it was just, yeah, as I say, how dare you do this to a, a well-beloved actor? And I thought, I never even thought of it like that. Maybe I should have done. So you wrote that book under a pseudonym. Was there a reason that you made that decision? Yeah, kind of. Because I've been a bit outspoken on, on some of the discussion boards and I thought it might be that if I'd submitted something under my own name, they might have thought, oh, we're not even going to look at this because he's he's shown such antipathy towards some of the existing range. So I thought, if I do get it rejected, I will. I want to know it wasn't for that reason. So I thought if I use a pseudonym, then it'll remove any doubt. So Because it led to people guessing who you were, because I read somewhere that Paul Cornell went down as one of you they thought you might be. Yes. I think that's a pretty good compliment. Yes, I, I did think it was very amusing at the time, because I mean, obviously he's, he's done brilliantly, but he, he wasn't an author I wanted to be like. So, I mean, he's he, he did me a huge favour by actually tracking me down to submit a short story. So he's obviously been quite professional about my slightly outsider attitude to what was going on during the wilderness years. Well, I think, you know, not everyone's going to like everything. And I think if you're an author, especially, especially in a Doctor Who thing, you're going to be used to people taking pot shots, sometimes for things that seem ridiculous. So if 
it doesn't seem too ridiculous. It's probably not going to take it too personally. You know, if it's if it's you coming up with something that actually makes sense, they're not they're not going to take that as a as an insult. I wouldn't have thought because they get so much crap. Yeah, I, I suppose so. I kind of stayed on the outside, so I didn't get a lot. And to be fair, most of the reviews I got were either positive or they were negative at all. They were generally constructively negative. And I can't remember who wrote one review that it did sort of, did make a couple of negative comments. And I thought, yeah, he has got a point there. I suppose, you know, that's the thing. You, you're never going to get everything right. And you're learning from what other people do. Because that wasn't the only time you stepped into Doctor Who from that point. Because you, you actually worked effectively for Big Finish because you worked on some of the short trips that were published by Big Finish. Yeah, there was actually only one of them, but I was, I was, I was quite pleased with it. It was called The Little Things. And um, it was an idea that I'd had floating around my head long before the wilderness years. Just the idea that because the TARDIS has an exterior that in theory changes, obviously it doesn't. But I was thinking, what if you had a room that all the exteriors were kept in? So when it lands on a planet or a time zone and it's either got something suitable ready, in which case it takes it from the shell room, or... It hasn't got something suitable, so it scans the area and creates something well, just suitable based on its surroundings, and it adds it to the shell room to be reused later if they revisit that planet or somewhere else that's similar. So, yeah, that really had been going around my head for a very long time, and it suddenly occurred to me, what if oh, the chameleon circuit is broken? It's only the bit that puts the shell outside. Everything else is still working. It's still producing new shells. And um, so it's a case of the Tom Baker Doctor and the Lala Ward Romana are stopping off at some planet and they get a warning on the console saying shell room full. And the Doctor's thinking, how can the shell room be full when the chameleon circuit's not working? So they then have to investigate why this is happening. And... This is all tied in with what I hope was a fun little time paradox going on. But yeah, that was that was the one that Paul Cornell asked me to submit. So I sent to Ian, I think I sent a couple of others sort of Christmassy themed, and I only remember one of them, and it was it was a bit rubbish, to be honest. So he ignored that one, but he said, yeah, go for the, the little things. And yeah, I was really pleased to get that placed in a Christmas anthology. The only downside was... The anthology didn't come out until just a couple of days after Christmas, so probably didn't sell as many as it could have done. I mean, obviously you've done a bit of Doctor Who writing. Were you writing anything else over that time period? Yeah, various short stories. In addition to that time travel one I mentioned, I wrote a a series of time travel stories, or rather just time stories, and they all featured different characters and even different rules of time travel. But each one featured a medallion that had an hourglass that got mentioned at some point. And there was there was a small press magazine at the time called Exuberance. And the editor said, yeah, he wanted, I think he wanted all the stories. In the event, he published two of them. And then the magazine reached that point that magazines often do when they're not getting enough readers. But uh, that's one I was, I was quite proud of. What else have I... I can't remember what else I've written. <laughs> too much. Oh, well, one thing I, I didn't mention, in Sons of Keresh, I anticipated the silence. I had a race called the 
Oh, I can't remember the name of the race. <laughs> Senior <laughs> moment. But uh, in fact, it's quite appropriate, really, because like the silence, you'd look at them, you'd scream in terror and look away and had no recollection of what you'd seen. They looked quite different. They didn't look like Eduard Munch's The Scream. And also, I think Time Lords could remember them if they saw them. And yeah, had lots of TARDIS shenanigans going on as well. There's one where Joe Grant is able to track somebody down to a hotel room and it's got an ensuite bathroom. No actual bath, just a shower cubicle. And it turns out that the shower cubicle is the TARDIS, but that leaves her wondering, hang on, if the shower cubicle is a TARDIS, then when that's gone, how is it a bathroom if it's got no bath? All these things that people don't think about when they're writing. Well, that's that's one of my approaches is sort of what would I do in that situation? And I found that sometimes when I'm writing, when I'm describing things, I'm focusing more on what's not there or what somebody doesn't do and just sort of let the reader work out what everything else is going on from that. So you're still writing now? Yes. The thing I'm most excited about at the moment is it's not Doctor Who or anybody else's universe. It's my own, what's called the Common Land series. And I've written the book uh, Strange Doorways. And the premise of that is basically doorways that everybody sees every day, but pay no attention to because there's no particular need to. But certain people, generally people who are steeped in English history, so sorry to the Scottish people here, it's it's specifically England. Shocking. The combination of being steeped in English history and insomnia means there's a chance that they will notice these doors. The Scotland thing is actually quite an important plot point. There's one bit where somebody travels to Scotland and suddenly can't see the doorways anymore. And it's where these doorways lead. And the main character, he's, he's got a 10-year-old daughter who he absolutely adores and who absolutely adores him. But then she goes missing and he kind of puts two and two together and thinks, could it be to do with these doorways that I've suddenly started noticing? And that's the basic premise of it. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, available under my real name, Paul Beardsley. And as I say, the title is Strange Doorways. Let's sort of jump back a little bit. So you obviously enjoy writing the Doctor Who stuff, and, and it was great yeah. to have you on talking. So you've obviously listened to some of the Big Finish as well and enjoyed that. So if you could, because you never know, maybe someone from Big Finish would be listening. If you could write any kind of Big Finish, have you got any characters you'd like to write for, or any Doctors? Oh, that's a question. I think almost any of them. I mean, Paul McGann, I think, was great. I mean, I know Tom Baker does them, but I think it's a lot harder to get to write for him. My wife and I actually just finished this evening watching the entirety of John Pertwee and Tom Baker's reign. And John Pertwee, I think, has dated much better than most people say. So had he been around, I'd love to write for him. I haven't listened to any of the Third Doctor played by other actors yet. But, oh, Doug um, can tell you all about them. Yeah, I'd love to hear about that. And then, of course, I've listened to the last podcast, of course. Well, I was going to say, that's the one you want to listen to. <laughs> yeah, The Annihilators, yes. But uh, yeah, I mean, I mean my absolute favourite Doctor now is Matt Smith. I never thought somebody would take over from John Pertwee, but he did. I just utterly in heaven watching a Matt Smith episode. It's interesting because he's quite different 
the John Pertwee. He's always felt he's got mm. more in common with Patrick Troughton, maybe. But it's interesting as well what you say about dating, because I think you're right. I think if I had to choose the era that's dated the worst in Doctor Who, I would say Peter Davison and Colin Baker are the, the sort of the time when it hasn't stood up. Whereas I think Sylvester McCoy, which was a very much derided era of its time, now looks like a stepping stone to where we got to rather than, mm. you know, it feels more modern now probably than it did then weirdly it feels like it's you know ace is very much a, a stepping stone to rose by the way have i have i mentioned my my link to ace what it was was when my mum was carrying me in her womb sophie aldred's mother was carrying sophie aldred in her womb and our respective mothers were friends so they worked at the same place and they were sort of comparing notes on their forthcoming babies and so, but it was a case of when she first started on Doctor Who, my parents who had no interest in the, in the programme, but they thought, oh, let's watch a bit because I've forgotten her mother's name now, but it was like her daughter's going to be in it. So it was a nice little family connection of sorts. Did the mothers keep in touch then that they knew that the daughter was Sophie Aldred? No, sadly, that, that would have been nice, but we'd moved away like quite a quite a number of years before, and, and they hadn't kept in touch. Mm. They were more sort of like work buddies. Uh, you know, you sometimes stay in touch with a work buddy, but quite often you, you drift apart when you... Yeah. Well, I guess they, 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 they knew each other for a while, did they, after Rosie was born, so that they would have known her name was Sophie and surname. Yeah, I, I guess so. With a, I don't think my mum actually met Sophie, and I don't think I did as a tiny baby, but we might have done, but... You don't remember at that age, do you? No, I've got some pre-three memories, but that, that's not one of them. Yeah. Well, I suppose here's, here's the question then. As a as a writer of, of Doctor Who, amongst other things, who are your favourite yeah. Doctor Who writers? Oh, I did. I read one by Alistair Reynolds, who's better known for his work outside Doctor Who. It was the one, something of time, Harvest of Time, I really did enjoy that one. It was one of Jamie's descendants, I think, was the main character. So I did like that. I very much enjoyed the first of the Andrew Cartmore Warhead, I think it was. Because as I was reading it, I, I wasn't seeing the prose. I was just seeing it as a high production version of the TV series. I think it's always um, a shame that Andrew Cartmore never actually wrote for the TV series. I mean, obviously, the influence on it's huge. But it's yeah, a shame never wrote, you know, it's a shame he never wrote an episode. I mean, I know that Big Finish have actually adapted the episodes that, with him, some of the stuff, that, the lost episodes, the episodes that would have been the next series, some of those have been adapted by Big Finish. Yes, um, I've listened to those. They're quite cheap to get hold of if you have an Audible subscription. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Which and I do. Obviously, you've got the likes of Ben Aronovich, who's gone on to become, you know, very successful. Oh, the, what's it, books? The Rivers of London. Rivers of Land, that's it. Oh, yeah, my, my dad hates fantasy. And one time when he just turned 80, I think, a few years ago, I'd gone round and I saw one, a library book by Ben Aronovich. And I was saying, Dad, are you reading this? And he grinned and he said, well, yes, there's the stupid stuff, which is what he meant by the fantasy element. But he's got a really good turn of phrase. And <laughs> I thought, well, he's won my dad over. That's them. I, do, I do very much enjoy Ben's books. And of course, Andrew Cartmel has his own series of crime books now in The Vinyl Detective, which I really enjoy as well. 
Yeah, I might check them out. I haven't up till now. I'm trying to think who else I particularly liked. I mean, I mentioned Paul Leonard earlier. I I was given his first book, Canusian Lullaby, to to review for Interzone magazine. And I really didn't like that book. And I thought, I've seen I've seen his writing in small press magazine. Again, the one I mentioned earlier, the exuberance. And I thought, oh, wow, this is this is like this compares well with Michael Moorcock. So I read Venusian Lullaby thinking, great, it's got Hartnell's Doctor, because I, lo- I love the era when everything, anything goes kind of thing, because they hadn't decided what they were about. It's set on Venus. It's reasonably scientifically accurate as far as you go and still do a Doctor Who. But it had all these Venusian names that were like spilt Scrabble sets, sort of obsessive, vulgar, um, just like every single one of them had ridiculously long names. And you think, all right, the ones that begin with the letter S, and there's, there's more than one, so it was really hard to follow. And so I gave quite a bad review. But then I tried, I think it was Speed of Flight, and I thought, oh, this is much better. So I actually wrote to him and and said, sorry I gave you such a bad re- review for Venusian Lullaby, but Speed of Flight, I, I can see from that, yeah, you can do this well. And we happened to meet uh, some SFX do, and uh, he's a really nice chap, as, as I said earlier. So he's one I'll, I'll look out for. And I don't think who else might want to get back to me on that later when I've had a few <laughs> names. I guess then, what's your favourite? I mean, we know from what you said, your favourite doctor is probably the third, then changed more recently to Matt Smith. Yes. So what's your favourite Doctor Who episode then? This is a bit like... What's your favourite Beatles album? The best of the Beatles is the laziest answer you can give. Probably The Day of the Doctor, or expand that to the Doctor Trilogy, or the sort of Doctor Tetralogy, because it had a Paul McGann one in. But yeah, I just thought that that hit the spot so well. And I'm, I'm someone who used to love multiple Doctor stories, then found they were a bit overdone, but... Day of the Doctor didn't feel overdone. It just worked really well. I have to say the introduction of John Hurt really gave me goosebumps. Just that strange cave and of mysterious figure and turning around and then the, the conversation. I did it in the name of sanity, yeah, but not in the name of the Doctor. Introducing John Hurt as the Doctor. I actually thought he was going to be the next Doctor, the one after Matt Smith. And I thought, really? They can get to John Hurt? playing the Doctor for a season. Well, I suppose they probably hadn't announced Peter Capaldi at that point, because we knew by the 50th he was going to be in it, because when he turned up, it was it was a surprise, because we weren't expecting him, but it wasn't a surprise, as, as in we knew that Peter Capaldi was the Doctor at that point. Yeah, it was, wow, they've actually got Peter Capaldi early, sort of thing. I mean, his eyebrows anyway. <laughs> yes. Pretty much all you see is his, his attack eyebrows. Yeah, I, I think it's it's one that we've gone back to and watched quite a few times. I think it still stands up as a great... Yeah. I mean, my wife likes the Doctor trilogy, and I usually try and say, yeah, but you need to have watched Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS, and then you need to have watched all the other Matt Smiths, and then you need to have watched the previous Stephen Moffat, because that introduces um, River Song. And so I've managed to persuade her two or three times now to... Watch the entirety of Matt Smith plus the earlier Stephen Moffat's. But I haven't really, we haven't really spoken about Doctor Who as is now. Are you still enjoying it? Did you enjoy Power of the Doctor? I didn't. No, I, I 
I haven't enjoyed the Chibnall era. I won't say much more than that, really. Well, maybe I will. I felt that Joe Martin showed that a female doctor would have worked, but I don't think Jodie Whittaker did. I did see Mel Goydroik, and I'm sorry about the pronunciation. I'm not sure how to say her name. I utterly love her from when she was a major character in Sorry I've Got No Head, children's comedy series. Oh, it was brilliant. I sometimes put it as the sketches had a a 30% hit rate for me, which is astonishingly high for a sketch show. And it was basically just like an adult comedy sketch show, except there was no swearing. And some of the ideas, I, I could talk all night about some of the ideas and characters they had in this, which were absolutely hilarious. But she played quite a few characters in it. And when I saw her on Children in Need, I thought she would have done the 13th Doctor brilliantly. She's got that enthusiasm and energy and presence, which I, I just didn't really feel Jodie Whittaker had. See, I've, I've quite enjoyed Jodie Whittaker. I haven't enjoyed the script particularly, but I thought when she'd had mm. something to do, I thought she'd been, she'd been pretty good. I think the BBC have a certain amount to blame because I think you saw in Rosa what could have been quite a good historical, had to have the shoehorned alien element that pretty much dragged it down. And I think Demons of the Punjab had the same. It was a potential for a really interesting episode that could have just been about the Doctor interacting with the past. Then, yeah, pure historical. Yeah, it would have been so much better, but they don't allow pure historicals, I believe, anymore. But I did. I just felt, I, I still really enjoyed Rosa, but I felt it was a lost opportunity to be better. Yeah. Uh, and I think if it had been better, it could have gone with us in as one of the best episodes of, of modern Doctor Who. And I think it... It failed that. Uh, when I was in Goose um, Bay in, in Alaska for the last three bit weeks, I was I went back through and started watching this series and started on the David Tennant one. And uh, the first, I don't know, several episodes are really good. And then it, it gets a bit more hit and miss and the effects are a bit rubbish in some of them as well. I mean, you know, budget and digital effects at that time, I guess. But yeah. yeah, I think the more recent stuff, it's uh, like the Rosie you're talking about. I thought that's a really good episode. And then it just, like all the rest of them, it just, the last, I don't know, third of it, it just all goes south. And you think, well, you know, I was enjoying that, but it's a bit of a letdown at the end. It's all wrapped up very quickly or it's it's gone a weird way. Hey, I think there were definitely a few episodes in, in that, certainly that last run and where that felt like the case that it could have been a really, really good episode that they just dropped the ball somewhere along the line. And I wonder again, I mean, as I say, I, I I quite like Power of a Doctor, but yeah. it was, to use the phrase, it was fan wank. It was a way of shoehorning in as much classic references, which hit the mark for me because that's what I like. But I can completely understand why people wouldn't, and I can completely see how that would confuse the hell out of someone who didn't know who those four people that he saw, you know, who, who mm. you know, Colin Baker and Davison and, and Sylvester McCoy and Paul McGann were. I mean, there was some some lovely. I like the fact that Paul McGann turned up wearing his same outfit that he wore when they did the um, episode. And then they were like, Why are you not wearing a robe? And he's just like, I don't wear robes. And that kind of, fair enough. I can totally believe that 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 doctor would refuse to wear the silly robe. And I, you know, for me to see Ace and Seven again having a conversation and just, you know, it was amazing. But it wasn't an amazing story. It just had some moments that really, really worked for me. A lot of it didn't make a lot of sense. No, I have to agree with that. I mean, my feeling was there's more to a recipe than just the ingredients. And 
I felt that Chibnall had just thought, well, if I pile on some Daleks and Cybermen, everyone's going to love it, surely. It was a bit like in New Earth when the Doctor managed to cure all the zombies by just pouring all the different medicines into a bucket and spreading it around. I think, to be fair, from a fan perspective, I will forgive him anything for that last moment in the self-help group where we got to see Ian. Yeah, I agree with you on that, definitely. You know, just that moment of finally getting to see Ian Chesterton back on screen. And I loved the bit where they went, she. And Ian's just like, she? Oh, (laughs) that's really, I just thought, oh. And apparently I I read today that they've just got the world record for the longest time between someone coming back to play the same character. I'm not surprised. I mean, he was, what, 97 because I think he's, I think he's pretty much retired from Big Finish now. He did Big Finish for a long time, but I think he's pretty much retired from that. But it was just lovely to see him. And yeah, I and you know, I think strangely, Doctor Who might have held the record before for the longest person playing the same character to come back. And I think that was the person that played Alpha Centauri. Oh, I didn't know it was the same. I suppose actor. Yeah, it was the same actor that played played them in the 70s and then played them when they came back in the, the Ice Warrior episode. Hmm. So, and I think that might have been the longest gap before that. But certainly this, they've just got the record, I think. Because he was meant to come back in the episode that was the Brigadier. Oh, the Mordred Undead, I think it was. Yes. That was meant to be him. And they could, he didn't get availability or something. So Yeah, would have been nice. But I, I think it still worked with the Brigadier. And yeah. because he'd been off, off the screen well, out of Doctor Who for quite a long time. I thought it still worked. But yeah, having him turn up sort of at that age, I thought was just wow. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I'd also love to see, and I've said it for ages, is I'd love to see the Doctor going back and seeing Susan. Because someday I will return, someday I, you know, yeah, fulfil that speech and just go back. I did have this idea of, a doctor actually I had the idea during the Capaldi reign and I think it would have worked best with with Capaldi where he's just in some setting like in London for example and just have a scene where a character who you don't immediately realize is Susan comes up to him and he says to her something like did you get King Edward's potatoes and she said no I had to get Tesco's own and him saying well I suppose that'll have to do and her handing them over and then see you later. I would love something as mundane and boring as that to happen. And all the fans going, hang on, this is a reunion between the Doctor and Susan. You, you can't just leave it at that. I mean, how easy did you find writing dialogue for the third Doctor and, well, characters, this is Joe, I get, I think it was the, the companion or whatever. And did that just roll off the, off the fingers onto the page or...? No, because I didn't know very much about characterization before. Although I'd had fiction published, I had never written for somebody else's character. I mean, apart from that brief encounter one. I do remember having limited budget and I ended up borrowing Death to the Daleks, which of course doesn't feature Joe. And I kept playing the the tape and then pausing it and writing down what the Doctor had said just to try and get his speech patterns and his mannerisms as well. One of the one of the reviews made a sort of quite quite friendly kind of criticism of the the number of times the doctor rubs the back of his neck, which of course he does quite a lot in on the telly. Yeah, on the telly. Yeah, Joe. I, I probably looked at a novelisation to try and get her speech pattern. 
One of the things I did find with Joe, though, was I, I did not want her to be useless, as she was in some episodes. But others, like the Sea Devils, she was absolutely invaluable. Well, I think the she, I mean, for for a seventies companion, she had you know an arc where you know she did go from being the, the ditzy, I don't know what she was, supposed to be nineteen year old or something, straight out of school and had failed the uh, stuff in the past and didn't know much about science or whatever. Yeah. Uh, to you know, being quite a, an upfront, go-getting companion. So, which you know, certainly wasn't the case for a lot of the the companions up to that point. And I guess Sarah was was again something similar who followed. So maybe she was the start of that, which was 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 progress really. Yes, I, I, I guess so. I'm thinking though that although prior to Joe and Sarah, there weren't very many strong portrayals of female characters. We did have some. Classic exceptions like Barbara in the Aztecs. I thought she was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, well, I think it, it it depends on the writer, really, doesn't it? It's it's not the the brief they get; it's how they want to you know have their story play out, and you know if they maybe like to the character and want to give them more more of an active part, then they would do it. Yeah, but uh, I mean, there's one moment where the Doctor and Joe are on the Tardis are in the Tardis, and it's hurtling across the landscape at the speed of an express train, actually quite a bit faster. And the Doctor's trying to get the TARDIS to stop before it crashes into somebody and causes serious damage. And there's a bit where Joe is looking at the scanner as this is happening, and the Doctor says, Joe, pass me the... And he mentions some some tool with a long, complicated name. And Joe, not even taking her eyes off the scanner, just locates the particular tool by touch and hands it to the Doctor. I thought... <laughs> I'll play against the usual, the what you would call it. Yeah. Well, I think that that's what the big Finnish stories are doing as well. Because I, as I said earlier, around, uh, maybe before we started recording this podcast, I listened to the first of the, the Doctor Who, Third Doctor Adventures, and uh, Joe's quite a lead character in the second of the two stories in that one, where she, well, they're all mistaken for a different person, and Joe's, Joe's mistaken or becomes the, the leader of the, the group. Oh, right. Um, so, so I, I, and I think you probably, you know, I think they all, I, mean, I imagine all the, the, the companions from way back to Hartnell's era have got uh, got a lot more they to do and, 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 you know, be more like they, you would imagine they really would be rather than ticking the box for having somebody to explain to the children, be the person to ask the questions so the doctor can explain to the children what's, what's going on. Yeah. That's a good thing about the big finish stuff is that you get a chance to have a bit more of a realistic set of companions and a companion doctor uh, relationship. Yeah, more realistic or certainly certainly more interesting. Oh, of course, going right back to the beginning, Ian Chesterton was kind of the viewpoint character. And of course, well, in the novelisation of the first Dalek story, it was entirely his point of view. Yes, well, that, the, the, the novelisation, well, that was that rewrote the, the first story, didn't it? Because it missed out the uh, little John types, which is, I think is definitely the way to go if you're going to introduce new people to watching Doctor Who. Show them the first episode, then skip straight to the end of the fourth episode and go into the Daleks. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've kind of forced myself to love An Unearthly Child, all four episodes, but it's it's an effort. I uh, had a couple of my friends who'd never really seen Doctor Who before. One who is a mother who's the same age as me or a year or two younger, and her daughter who's, she's 25, 26 now, something like that. And they'd never seen, or her daughter had never seen Star Trek either. So I thought, well, she's seen a bit of Star Trek now because I lent her this, the films, the, 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 the sort of uh, 
the classic era films. So I thought, oh, they're coming, they're coming around. I'll see if they'll sit down and watch this because I was thinking maybe we could do some sort of a podcast. She'd done a, a degree in drama at, at Edinburgh University. So she'd have a perspective that's completely different to mine. I've obviously got the, the background to having watched, well, not the, the first two Doctors live, but the John Pertwee onwards. And our mother's never seen it, similar age, but completely different viewpoint. But we never recorded anything because I just thought, we'll sit, see how it goes. And uh, they sat through all four episodes. And at the end, I got such a hard time about what a chore it was. That was just such a rubbish thing to force them to watch. And they're never coming around again. Could have made one of those good reaction videos. Yeah, yeah. But they were kind of joking about that. But I think they would come down and watch. I, I, I would probably try a different uh, Patrick Crown story next or another, uh, you know, a, a better William Hartner one. But but uh, so that, that was that was why I, why we suggest missing out the cavemen completely. I think we we can be quite forgiving. I think as fans that we will put up with stuff that actually are there. You can understand why people looking at something now, especially something that was maybe done fifty years ago, where the pace is yeah. slower. Yeah. So this would have been before COVID. So it would, it would have been about fifty six years before that they watched it that it was made. So black and white and everything. So. Not surprising. I wasn't. I wasn't surprised. Put it that way. I was just surprised that they didn't say that after the second episode and waited all the way through to the end of the fourth. <laughs> I think though it's got some amazing merits. I mean, I sort of imagine like I'm a school teacher. A few hours ago, all I had to worry about was getting homework marked and lessons planned. And I've got a slightly strange student now. I'm suddenly filthy. I'm in a stinking cave. I'm probably going to get executed tomorrow. And then there's two cavemen having a fight with the fire in the background. And in some ways, it's so dramatic that you've been pulled out of your comfort zone and this is going on. And I think it's an amazing scene to watch. Yeah, the rest of it is slow and boring. And if somebody says fire one more time, I will scream kind of thing. Yeah, I think maybe having had a, that part of one or maybe two episodes, cutting out some of the some of the, the padding would have yeah. moved it a bit. But, you know, they had episodes to do. It was a completely different time. It's not surprising, really, that it, it has dated that one. I was I was quite amused by something I read on Doctor Who Day yesterday, which was this marks the 59th anniversary of that time two teachers stalked a pupil and got kidnapped by them. And I thought, <laughs> that's a fairly accurate description of what happened in yes. Doctor Who. I mean, we've obviously covered a lot of what you would do, you know, who you'd like to write for. Would you write for Matt Smith? Given the opportunity, oh, yes. I mean, I don't have anything specific in mind. I'd, I'd have to really concentrate and come up with some ideas. But, yeah, it'd be, I think it'd be an absolute joy to write for. Then again, it might be the reason he is so good in my eyes is because he does things that go beyond what I could write. So who knows? And if you could bring back any any sort of historical big big finish or Doctor Who bad guy? Is there anyone you'd love to bring back? Oh, that's that's an interesting one. Not sure about the bad guys. I mean, the only thing that one that springs to mind has actually been done, and that's Mavic Chen. I like the whole dynamic with Sarah Kingdom and Brett Vion and all that. Thinking back, though, you know, when Big Finish came along at first, it would have been in the middle of the wilderness years. We didn't, again, we didn't know anything was coming and it's just been really nice to get these extra stories. Who would have thought we would ever have got to see, you know, more Sarah Kingdom? Yeah, I mean, part of her appeal was when I first became aware of her existence, of course, we'd lost most of the Dalek Master Plan, still still have. And I think the novelization hadn't yet come out of, of that serial. 
So you just get a few pictures of her holding a gun and captions like she came to kill but stayed to be a friend. And I was thinking, I want to know more about her. And yeah, being the it, sister of the act, of the character played by the actor who played the brigadier, of course. Of course, yeah. But uh, no, it's an exciting time to be a fan again. It feels like we don't know what's about to happen. For the first time, probably since it came back in some ways, we've got no idea which route this is going to go. Yeah, that is true. I mean, we know vaguely that it's going to be, what, I think it's three specials with David Tennant, but where Shooty fits in, we have yet to find out. Were there anything further is said about the timeless child remains to be seen yeah it's it's nice to have that feeling of moving into the unknown it was i think douglas adams watched watched doctor who from if not the very start certainly early on and well he must have watched the dalek master plan because he ripped it off in hitchhiker's guide but he commented way back about how it was moving into the unknown it was exploring unknown territory And, yeah, I'm using the word unknown a lot there, but that's kind of the point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that that maybe feels like quite a good place to end it, actually, you know, that that little little talk, little speech. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to us and for doing the podcast. And we know that we're going to get you back to do Great Mastodon at some point, which I think Doug will like. It's Hartnell, you're a lost story. Yeah, we've not done Hartnell yet, have we? No. Well, but... Thank you very much for having me. And uh, nice to see you again, Doug. I didn't say hello to you at the beginning, but it's all right. It's good to be here and I'll be very pleased to be involved again. Excellent. If you've enjoyed this, and we hope you have, please hit subscribe and we will speak to you at the next podcast. Goodbye.